You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to focus our attention on verse 4, but just for fun, let's go back to chapter 5 and start reading in verse 22. So if you would, join me in standing as we honor the the reading of Scripture together. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the the instruction that you give, the order that you you put in, in our relationships Lord, and we pray that as we seek to to understand a little bit of this this morning, that you would guide us. Lord, that your spirit would, would come and open our hearts and our eyes to see the, the truth, the beauty of, of your word and in your design, and how all of this points to the to the gospel and the love that you have for us in Christ. Lord, we pray that the name of Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified this morning. Lord, we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. On the last Sunday of the month, it's been our custom over the last year to leave the book of Romans to look at the, the membership covenant or agreement that was proposed at the annual meeting last year. I hope that you've been thinking about that, have some time to to look at it, to reflect on it. I hope that you recognize what a great tool that is. 
as we get to the, the end of the year here, we hope that as we've gone through this series, that we've had time to, to just reflect on it a little bit. And I want to announce that, that we're going to have a, a special service at the end of August. That's the, the day of our annual meeting, the last Sunday in August. And that in the evening, that morning, I would like us as a church to publicly have an opportunity to agree with the statement. To say, yes, I agree with this. I, I, I see that this is what it is to be a, a member of this church. I agree to pursue these things with the help of every other member in our church community. As the, the deacons were visiting about this, we wanted us all to understand that we are saying here is what we're saying is essentially that we're, we're starting over in, in some respect. For instance, if there's areas in the covenant that we've willfully or not so willfully, but yet the same neglected, let's say church attendance or lifting one another up in prayer, this is an opportunity for us to start fresh and commit to those things and perhaps find a, a brother or sister in the church community that will help us and keep us accountable in those things. We also talked about this being an opportunity to start over in our relationships with one another. Of course, the statement's purpose isn't so that we can lord these things over one another or the leadership lords them over you. The purpose is to come alongside one another in community as we all together pursue Christ-likeness. One of the, the things that comes up over and over in the membership agreement is relationships. Relationships in a church are incredibly important. Reconciliation, forgiveness, marriage relationships, relationships with brothers and sisters in their families, brothers and sisters in the church community. In our text today, parents and children. So... Part of starting over in our mind is an opportunity to make these things right with those in whom we may have issues. It might be as simple as one person visiting with another person saying something like, I know that you've had a rough couple years and I just, I didn't pray for you like I should have. I haven't been praying for you like I should have. You're my brother, you're my sister, and I, and I want you to know that I do love you, I do care for you, therefore, I will lift you up in prayer. It might be more complicated than that. It might be trying to reconcile with another person that has no interest in reconciliation. It might be hard if you've wronged somebody to ask for forgiveness, but that's what starting over means. It's got to start somewhere. It also means that if a person has wronged you, doesn't come to seek reconciliation, that you don't hold it against them just the same. It's starting over. It just look, just look at it as a time to, to move on. We cannot control other people, the other person, but we do have a responsibility for ourselves, and that is what we can control. So after today's message, 
It might be a, a child having a conversation with a parent or a parent having a conversation with their child. I, I think that you get the, the point. I just want to, to start you off thinking and praying about what this looks like in, in your life as we move forward to that experience at the end of, at the end of August. If you want to look at the, the copy of the membership agreement, that entire agreement should be in your, in your bulletin. There's some on the presentation wall in the foyer if you want a bigger copy. So if you look at your agreement, we're going to talk about the, the second to the last bullet point, and it says this. We resolve to practice personal and family worship and to train our children and those under our care in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So notice just right off the, the, the front here that this statement is broader than parent-child relationships. It's written to, to everyone in the church that has responsibility toward other people. So those that, that come into to our care for whom God has given us responsibility, we have this responsibility. Now, I will say this right at the onset, that it is, it is a conviction of mine that I held pretty close that a person does not really have the right to tell others how to raise their children until they've had their own and tried to raise them. It's also true, I think, that no wise person will give advice until his own children have grown up and turned out well. But pastors don't have that luxury. They don't, get to, they don't preach Ephesians chapter 6 without talking about the relationships between children and parents. So keep that in, keep that in mind in, in some of this. Now, looking at that whole statement, we could focus our attention on the, the beginning of it, talking about personal devotions, family worship. I, I want to get more to the, to the heart of the, the statement. And I, and I think what we're going to say this morning has some implications for family, personal devotions and family worship time. I think in your, in your notes there, I actually put some, uh, a couple resources for family worship. Uh, times in there? I did. I think I did. Um, if I didn't, you can ask me about that. But I want you to notice the, the second part of the statement that says that we will train our children and those under our care in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's really what we're going to focus our attention on. And notice, first of all, that that statement is, is basically just a, a quote from Scripture, from Ephesians 6, 4. Now, of course, in that verse, it's specifically addressed to parents, more specifically fathers and their children, but the same principle holds through, true for other relationships as well. Wives and husbands, slaves and, and masters uh, coming up. We know this because Paul addresses those relationships as well. Notice in Ephesians 5 and verse 24, he speaks there about the husband and the wife relationship as an example of the church submitting to Christ. So all of these relationships that are being addressed here are really in that category. 
or 521, even more clear, that we are to submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. That's how God designed it. That's how it, it works. Not everybody's the same. Not everybody runs around giving, giving commands. Some lead, some submit. There's, there's, a, there's an order in our relationships. Having said that, what we're talking about this morning is in the home. Let me see if I can illustrate the importance of the home here and this subject with uh, satire. Most of us or some of us probably have been exposed to uh, the Babylon Bee. Here's this one I, I saw the other day. My phone battery was about dead, but I did take a screenshot. Just think about this. The student is, is graduating from high school and all of a sudden, parents in the church, they, they become immediately concerned about what the young person is going to face in the world. Congregation prays graduating senior to be prepared for the basic secular arguments that they never bothered to prepare for. The question that this brings up in, in our mind is, what are we doing to prepare young people for the world that they're going to face? We don't do anything for 18 years, and then all of a sudden we expect God to come along and, and fix this. But this draws our attention back to, to verses like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, that gives us a task in those 18 years to train up a child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of course, the scriptures are clear and have the answer to that question, and that is that fathers are not to provoke their children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I want you to notice something interesting about the text in verse 1, in chapter 6, children are to obey their parents, plural. But then in verse 4, Paul turns his attention specifically to fathers. Some English translations have actually changed the text in verse 4 to parents. So the question there is, is Paul using the word father in verse 4 as a synonym to parents? Does he intend to mean parents, kind of like when we use the word mankind? Not really a, a politically correct thing to say anymore, but everyone still gets it, right? It, it means men and women alike. All of mankind is all of humanity. So the question is, is that what Paul is doing in verse 4? And the answer to that question is that Paul could have used parents there because certainly he has communicated that both parents are involved in the discipline and instruction of the Lord if children are to obey both of them. It just makes sense. If children are to obey their parents, then both parents are involved in some respect there, right? In the discipline and instruction of them, and then children have the obligation to obey. 
But it should also be noted that Paul uses a specific word for father here, pater, which means father. It can also be used in reference to the father of a family line, like drawing your lineage back to Abraham, the male figure that Jews trace themselves back to. We've talked about this before, that God created men and women equal. Men are not better than women, but God gave each different roles. And in this case, the father bears the primary responsibility in the home. That's why Paul is singling out father here. Someone has to bear the responsibility. It it all has to come back to one person. When it comes down to two, they're going to point their fingers at each other in blame. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve both tried to pass the blame. It was her, it was him, it was the serpent. But they could not because Adam was primarily responsible for the action in the garden. Not because he was better than Eve, not because he was just created first, but because God made him to be responsible and put the ultimate responsibility for the woman in his lap. So the responsibility for managing the home, raising the children, is primarily the father's. So a father cannot say, well, this kid did not grow up to love the Lord because their mom was at home with them all day, and I guess she didn't do anything. Well, I was off earning a living. It was her fault. That's not how it works. She may very well have been home with them, She may very well have not done anything to train and discipline them. But the responsibility ultimately falls on the father. The fact is, both parents, whatever the the family structure looks like, both parents are in the training and instruction business of children. It happens most effectively when both parents are on the same page and in it together and understand the design. The mom, the dad, one of them may very well have more time with the children, but someone bears the ultimate responsibility. And in God's design, it is dad. By the way, It isn't only the spouses that parents may blame. Just like in the garden, they blame the serpent. When we say that the ultimate responsibility for instruction and discipline of the children lies with the father, it means that they cannot blame the church. They cannot blame the the Christian school. Let me just put it this way. If parents choose to send their children to Sunday school, to VBS, to summer camp, to a Christian school, what they are saying in essence is, since they, and ultimately the father, bear responsibility for the child's instruction in the Lord, they believe that that Christian school, that summer camp, that VBS program will assist them and come alongside them in that endeavor of training and instruction in the Lord. As parents, we're always looking for ways in which we can be assisted in this task, aren't we? Not just to farm out the responsibility. Can't do that. The Bible doesn't give us that option. Can't say if my children didn't turn out right, the Christian school wasn't doing their job. 
VBS didn't work. Not to farm out the responsibility, but to give them the best instruction that we possibly can. This is where I think homeschooling is a noble option. If one truly believes that it is the, the best option for training their children, that a decision isn't clouded by pride, that they've weighed all the other options, they've prayed about it, and they've concluded that that is the best option for the training and instruction of their children in the Lord, if that is their conviction, let's say go for it. Because that is the primary task. It falls on them and they bear responsibility. No one else. Now, having said that, many people aren't going to come to that conclusion. They're going to come to different ones. They're going to say, the best option for us is to choose whatever the case may be. Now, I should say at this point, and I will hopefully bring it up again, but fathers are not responsible entirely for what their children may become. So make that distinction. The responsibility of discipline and instruction in the home, ultimately lies with the father, but he cannot always be blamed for the choices that children make. Children are their own people and responsible for their own decisions, just as the wife is. Now, of course, in our text here, we're skipping past the, the first couple of verses pretty much speak of the responsibility of children, a fact that some children might be happy about in this moment. But we should notice that if children are to obey their parents, then parents must give those children proper directions to obey. If children are going to honor their parents, then their parents must be worthy of that honor That's why it's so important. So when Paul addresses father specifically here, it really has two parts. Notice, one negative, one positive. The negative aspect involves restraint. Do not exasperate your children. So they are to exercise their authority in a balanced way. In a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, we read it this way. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. There's a proper place for discipline, but that discipline must not be arbitrary. You know this if you have children. Children have a built-in sense of justice. Discipline must not be unkind. And if our discipline is this way, we're told that our children may become discouraged. John Stott said it this way. He said, almost nothing causes a child's personality to bloom and gifts to develop like the positive encouragement from a loving and understanding parents. There was a a distinguished painter by the name of Benjamin West. 
And when he was young, his mother went out and he was in charge of his little sister, Sally. And the kids, like kids do, located the bottles of ink that his mother had hidden. And Benjamin decided that he was going to paint his sister's portrait. He made a great mess. There was colors of ink all over, stains on the carpet. His mother came home, looked around, said nothing of the ink stains, picked up the piece of paper that Benjamin was working on and said, why you painted Sally? I see it. And then she leaned over, gave him a kiss and started cleaning up the mess. When Benjamin West looked over this experience and thought back on it, he would always say, it was my mother's kiss that day that made me a painter. Martin Luther said it this way, it is true to, it is true to say, spare the rod and spoil the child, but beside the rod, keep an apple to give the child when he has done well. There is a balance in, in parenting, isn't there? Yes, there must be discipline, but make sure we're not discouraging our children. And sometimes it's, it's difficult to look past the, the ink stains for what's going on in the child's heart, but we must do that. But there's also a, a positive side in the text, and that is the training and instruction of the Lord. So think about that with me for a moment. How are fathers and mothers going to train their children in the instruction of the Lord, and thus they themselves have been trained in the Lord themselves. How can fathers and mothers be instructed to do this training and instruction when they themselves are not? Speaking to fathers primarily because they bear the responsibility, how are they going to do this unless they know what the Word of God teaches? One person said it this way, how are they to teach with wisdom unless they have themselves learned in Christ's school? Unless a father is growing with God, then he is going to fail in his task. Because you know this, children grow. It's, it's one thing to sit down and teach kids the stories of the Bible. It's, it's one thing to, to plant small seeds of the gospel with kids when they are small. But just as kids go from milk to, to mush to solid food, so do the children that are being raised under our care. Pretty soon they're going to be asking questions and you're going to be put on the defense. And you not only need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have, which is scripture, that's defense. But what about the offense? The instruction. Pretty soon kids are going to be start to, are starting to, to read. What will you have them read? How will you know if that is the best thing for them to, to read if you haven't read it yourself? The, the logic here is, is pretty simple, but yet it's something that many parents never bother to think about. They think that they can trade a child in the ways of the Lord when they themselves are not growing. But our lack of growth doesn't stop the child from growing himself. Our lack of growth 
doesn't stop a child from graduating all of a sudden. And then we find ourselves praying that we've, because we've failed to, to equip, equip them. How are we going to teach our children to, to study the Bible for themselves when we ourselves have not gotten past milk? The author of Hebrews says it this way. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's quite a a rebuke, isn't it? But it wouldn't have made itself into the scriptures if we did not need to hear it. This is a prompt for us to continue to, to grow. Fathers, husbands, Husbands have a responsibility to grow because they are responsible for their wife. Just go back to Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. I mean, think about that for a moment. The responsibility of the husband for his wife is to sanctify her just as Christ is sanctifying the church. Sanctify is just a a word to mean grow in holiness. Again, it's a pretty high standard, isn't it? Marriages grow, don't they? I mean, the husband has a certain responsibility in the relationship. That responsibility to to sanctify his, his wife to grow her in in godliness, then he had better be continuing to grow. If he's growing, then chances are so is the rest of the family. That's the design. We need to, to make something clear, and that is that children bear responsibility here as well. And for that matter, so does the wife. Children and and wives are people, and they too are responsible to God and others. Don't think that what we've said here this morning takes away from that at all. It's clear in the garden that Adam bore the primary responsibility for violating the command of God, but the woman was still held responsible. Why? Because she was still responsible for her own actions. And she knew what she was doing. She knew that she violated the command of God. This is the same with children. Children are responsible. So if there is a child that has abandoned the Lord, is living worldly, that isn't necessarily the parent's fault. I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm saying that it might not be. Parents in this situation should not abandon the hope for their child. Our duty as Christians is to live as Christians live, to pray for our children, to remember James 5.16, that a prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
There may also be children that don't have godly parents, whose parents are, are not good examples, that they have not uh, taught them, not instructed them in, in the Lord. One commentator said it this way. He said, it, it is very unfortunate for the parents when they are not godly, and it's a handicap for the child, but it does not excuse in failing to be what God would have you be as his follower. In other words, the child, now an adult, cannot make excuses for their disobedience and their rebellion on the grounds that they didn't have godly parents. Think of Joseph. His father wasn't spiritual. His family wasn't conducive to a, a high standard of behavior. His brothers were spiteful. They were violent. They were trying to kill their own brother. And they sold him as a slave instead. In other words, there was no real spiritual support. But he determined from his youth that he was going to follow God. And he did it, even in adversity. And whatever the circumstances were in his life, he followed God. And I think that if, if we're honest, we have mentioned enough groups of people here to find ourselves all in one and all a little inadequate. Whether we're a child or a parent, whether our children are old or young, we're a husband or wife, we long to be one whether we've been married for a little while or a long while, we've all fallen short somewhere in these roles. The fact is, training our children in discipline and instruction of the Lord is a, a tall task. Not only to do it, but to be in a position to do it rightly. To think through these things before we get married. And before we meet our spouse, some of us find ourselves in, in marriage and felt like the parents in the Babylon Bee thing that where we were praying for God's mercy because we hadn't taken time to, to repair for the responsibility that was laid on us. This is the point where I offer you Christ. He is merciful. He was perfect where we have fallen short. Therefore, we do not have to dwell on the past and where we've fallen short. But in Christ, we have the grace and, and strength to push forward. So know this, moms and dads, children, husbands and wives, if you have fallen short somewhere along the way in your parenting, then the blood of Jesus Christ covers that and you are forgiven. Some will look back and they see how they could have done so much better. How they squandered their time with their children, perhaps that's true of you. But you're still forgiven in Christ. And you need to know that Christ is so much bigger than your failure. And he will still honor your prayers. He can do more in one moment than you can with a lifetime of good intentions and positive instruction. He's in control. In fact, that's the point of the Lord's table. That Christ is bigger than our failures. We come to him to find rest, forgiveness, and, and mercy. We look back to what he has done for us, and it reminds us that we are forgiven. And that he cares for us 
and is still with us and gives us the strength to, to carry on. A strength to carry on that doesn't come from our own fortitude, but what he has done for us. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. He died for us. He dealt with those things. He threw our sins as far as the east is from the west and said, I will remember them no more. Like the catechism question today. Can you be forgiven? Absolutely. Perhaps you're here this morning, you recognize that you are a sinner. You know that you've, you've fallen short in, in some way. You've sinned against an all-holy God. Perhaps there's, there's sin in your life that you haven't confessed it to anyone. The Bible is clear, though. If, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If this is you, just bow your head. Talk to God, ask him to forgive you of your sins. Trust that when Jesus Christ died, he took your sins and dealt with them on the cross so that you could be right with God. Believe that Jesus Christ died for you so you'll be free from your sin and your guilt. Jesus Christ is so much bigger than your past mistakes. There's no reason for our guilt to live in it because Jesus Christ took it. The Lord's table is a, a serious time in the life of the church. It's a time that is open to, to all believers. So if, if you're a visitor and you're, and you're visiting with us, you're welcome to participate with us. I would say that it's also a time of self-examination. It's a time when we recognize our sins and we recognize what Christ has done for them, that he's taken them and died for them. His body was broken, his blood spilled out. It is time to contemplate what Christ has done for you. As you examine yourself, ask, you, ask yourself this. Is there sin in my life that I hold dear and refuse to repent of? Repent means to, to turn from it and turn toward Christ. And is there sin that we refuse to repent of? Because if that's the, if that's the case, then repent of your sin. Turn from it. Cling, flee to Christ and take communion. But if you continue to hold to your sin and not repent, to not turn to Christ knowing what he has done for you, don't take communion. The scripture says that we, we heap judgment on ourselves when we do that. It is a tremendous opportunity. We look and, and look right here what Christ has done for us. That he's taken our sin, that he's dealt with that. And if we choose our sin over what he has done for us, then this, this meal is not for you. It's for those who, who give their sin to Christ, to let him take it, let him forget it, and us move forward knowing what Christ has done for us in joy, in delight, not in, in guilt. Let's pray, and as I pray, I'm going to ask the, the deacons to, to come forward, and then we'll, we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. 
If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.